Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Maggie McNeil, who identifies herself as a retired or perhaps semi-retired sex worker. Is it retired or sex a sex worker, or is it semi-retired, Maggie? Fill us in. It's semi-retired, Dr. Miller. I, um, I don't take new clients anymore. So I only see my existing clients, so semi-retired. And is this is the word uh, the the words a sex worker is that appropriate or comfortable for you or do you have another uh, uh, nom de plume? No, sex worker is fine. Um, I mean, sex worker is a very broad term, um, but most of the specific terms for for what my specific type of sex work are either um, a little rude or else they're too legalistic. Escort works. We can say escort if you want. Let's hear what the rude ones are. Oh, whore, harlot, um, <laughs> hooker, uh, <laughs> you know, lots and lots of those. So I, I want to hear you uh, tell us about this incident where you were at a dinner party uh, with highly educated people <laughs> and people were talking about, you know what I'm referring to there. Yes. 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 Careers and so on. And someone said, well, Maggie, why don't you tell us uh, what you do and tell us what your response was. Well, what it, what, what it was is that um, it was at a dinner party and the hostess um, had always been friendly to me, but I had started doing um, escorting fairly recently. She didn't seem to mind when I was a stripper, but when I went to escorting, it seemed to bug her. And so the conversation around dinner was, um, was that none of us, even though we all had advanced degrees, that none of us worked in our degree. And so the, uh, the hostess said to this one lady, oh, Maggie has a very interesting job, don't you, Maggie? And the lady innocently turned to me and said, what do you do? Because she didn't know. And I said, I'm a whore. And she's like, excuse me? And I'm like, you know, a, a harlot, a hooker, a lady of the evening, a fil de joie you know, and, and probably six others. <laughs> and, and she was like, oh, oh, she was very polite about it. But it, it was it clearly took her off guard um, because I think that the hostess was trying to embarrass me and she ended up embarrassing herself instead. Because actually you were very matter of fact about what you did. Very. You're comfortable yes. about what you do. Is that correct? Very comfortable. Yes. Okay. So what I want to know is, how did you become comfortable being who you are in a country that is so hypocritical and nasty about people in your line of work? Give, tell us how the comfort zone came about. I think, I think what happened, honestly, was that my mother inadvertently did me a favor. Um, my mother was very, very herself very, very reticent to discuss anything with sex. And so even growing up, if I'd ask her questions um, about anything sexual, remotely sexual, even, even you know, tangentially, um, she would be something like, oh, you know that already, or oh, go look that up, or, or something like that. 
um, instead of actually answering me. And so I think what happened was I never got any kind of programming regarding sex from my mother, not good or bad. I didn't get the sex is dirty thing. I didn't get anything at all. And so I formed my own opinions about it, and those opinions weren't negative. So by the time I hit high school, you know, and I started getting exposed to, to a wider culture and, you know, more things on TV and movies and things, by that point, I had kind of, my brain had already solidified the way that I was going to see sex, and it wasn't in that, in that way. And where was it that you grew up? Where did you go to high school, Maggie? I went to high school in uh, in New Orleans at a, a, a parochial high school. I went to parochial school all the way through 12th grade. Um, a, a small, a uh, little small town one growing up. And then um, as I got to high school age, there were no, there was only public schools in, in our county, parish, as we say in Louisiana. And my parents had that uh, old-fashioned Catholic thing of um, an education is extremely important. So they didn't want to send me to public school. They wanted to send me to a, to a Catholic school. And the nearest one was in New Orleans, which was 30-some-odd miles away. Uh, and so I rode a bus every day with all the other kids from around there that all went to the various schools in town, and back and forth, you know, over an hour in the morning and over an hour in the evening um, for four yeah. years. Now, the Catholic religion is known for having some very strong and strict uh, beliefs and teachings with regard to sex. Um, how did that affect you during high school? I, you know, it's very funny. In the 70s, it seems like the Catholic schools, at least in New Orleans, were making a big effort to be um, very reasonable. Uh, so we actually, I got... Um, sex education as part of my ninth grade religion class, because I think that the diocese, their philosophy was to put, if they had to do sex education, they were going to do it within the context of the Catholic faith. Um, and so we got, you know, we actually got quite a, quite a good uh, sex education. You know, I've seen some of the materials that are used now in the abstinence only programs and we've had, we had nothing like that. It was much, much, much better than that. Looking back at it, what I can see, the main problems of, of the sex education I got in high school were they exaggerated the rate of failure of birth control methods. And they spent a lot of time, um, you know, those awful pictures of, of diseased penises from, from gonorrhea and, you know, those sorts of pictures. Um, and of course, the whole abortion thing, you know, because again, Catholic. But but as far as the mechanics of the sex education, I, I really can't fault them. Um, it, you know, like I said, other than those those dis slight distortions. Um, but it's not as bad as what's being taught now. And then after high school, did you continue your education? Yes, I, I have. Um, I went to UNO, University of New Orleans. I got my undergraduate degree was in English. I originally wanted to do physics, but I could not handle the math, um, which was which was humbling. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, integral calculus was the first class in my entire educational career I ever failed. Um, so it was humbling. Uh, and then uh, later on, I spent a few years out 
and then went back uh, to library school. And I got my master's degree in library science from LSU. And when was your first uh, sexual experience? And tell us about that and whether it was with a boy or a girl or what, what was that like? It was with a boy. Um, my first one was on my 15th birthday. Uh, and the, the reason it was on my 15th birthday is because my older cousin, who, unlike my mother, had kind of, seen, he could see where I was going. Um, and so when I was 14, he, he felt as though I was heading for, uh, for, you know, early promiscuity. And so he made me promise that I wouldn't have sex until I was at least 15. Well, people have asked me, why 15? Why not 16? I'm like, I think he realized I was never going to wait until 16. So he, <laughs> he figured 15 was a good compromise. Um, and so I, I kept the letter of my promise. I waited until my 15th birthday. Uh, while you were in parochial school? Yes. And how did that sit with you? Were you comfortable with it or did you, were you guilt ridden or? No, not, no, um, I was, it didn't go the way that I expected because being a 15 year old, just newly minted 15 year old, of course I had no real idea um, of, of how, I knew the mechanics, but I didn't understand, I think, how easy it is to how how easy it is to have bad sex <laughs> really and and so you know he didn't know what he was doing i was an eight, he was an 18 year old lsu freshman he was losing his virginity with me um and i was losing mine with him and neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing and so it was it was terrible which of course you know i think most people's some people romanticize their first time but i think most people's first time is probably pretty terrible. Um, and it, it didn't take me long to figure it out uh, after. Um, to figure but I would, no to guilt or anything like that, though. It didn't take you long to figure what out? Oh, to figure out basically what, what needed to be done to make it better. You know, basically, and one of the things I hit upon was this guy was obviously too young. Now, again, I was 15 and he was 18. However... I still concluded that he was too young to know what he was doing. Um, and after I got into college, it got easier um, because, you know, the guys I was, I was seeing was, were much older. Uh, and, and in fact, I once, one of my friends once asked, and, and I, I really had to think about it. I don't believe I've ever been with a guy under 18. I think it's only 18 and up. I think even when I was young, I don't recall ever, um, Mm -hmm. I didn't like young guys. You know, I wanted I like mature guys. And when you say make it better, am I correct in thinking by better? You mean feel better, more pleasure? More yes. Excitement? Yes. Yes. Uh huh. And you, you said something earlier. You said your cousin sort of sniffed you out as a girl who was headed for, quote, promiscuity. Yeah. Now, promiscuity is a word that's used most typically by the culture and by men yes. to be negative about a woman who enjoys sex the way a yeah. man enjoys sex, yes. right? It's a put down word. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I agree with you on that. Right. So what, so basically your cousin was saying he sniffed a familiar person. You were like him in some way. Yes, exactly. The same thing yes. the boys did, right? 
Yes. Yes. And how did you uh, at, at some point in your life and tell I want to hear about it, you decided to go from having a sexual relations uh, sounds like primarily with boys or males. Uh, you decided to sell the uh, the product, so to speak. Uh, how did that come about? Well, actually, I I only the first time was with a guy. I switched back and forth pretty frequently. Um, now that caused me. You were asking about guilt. That caused me some guilt at first. Um, because it was hard to understand for my own self. And even the few books I had encountered uh, that discussed homosexual activity of any kind, at the time, bisexuality was almost not even recognized. And so it was, it was weird to me because I, I kept seeing this, these treatments of the idea of uh, attraction to women as being necessarily aversion to men. And that wasn't my experience, so I got even more confused. Uh, and it took me really until I was in college to really kind of sort all that out and realize, oh, no, it's just that there's a lot of ignorant people out there writing about this subject. <laughs> it's not really that, that, um, that I'm a freak or anything. But so my, my first encounter with a girl was probably no more than six months after my first one with a boy. Um, it, it wasn't that long. And then it kind of just went back and forth, you know, uh, through through really through high school and college. It was it was pretty evenly, whichever struck my fancy at the time. And how did the experience with the girl six months after your cousin? How did that come about, Maggie? That was basically um, a kind of a. Um, it was a good friend of mine at high school, and I had gone to her place. Um, after school, and we were sitting on the couch. I still remember this. It's very funny how you remember these things. I was sitting on the couch with her, and we were discussing um, Mae West movies, because she was a big fan of Mae West. Uh, and somehow in there, we had also got on the topic of uh, gangsters, like John Dillinger and, who, and his legendary giant penis uh, and things like that. And at some point, we just kind of stopped talking and I looked at her and she looked at me and we just sort of started kissing. It just kind of happened. Like it wasn't planned. It just sort of happened. Yes. Um, <laughs> but then and, and in those days, too, nobody cared if I stayed at her house and slept in the same bed. Nobody saw anything weird about that. Nobody thought anything strange. Right. I had a little relationship going for a while. Yeah. In my day, they called them girls pajama parties. Yes. Where the kids yes. got together and did that. But yes. how did you move? How did you at 15 and a half? How did you move from kissing her to other activities, licking her vagina or or, or sucking on her nipple? How, how did you know to do that? Or did it just come naturally? Can you I tell us? Came naturally. Yeah. I don't think I mean, you know, yeah, it just seemed like the things to do. <laughs> you I, mean, know? I certainly wouldn't expect that two 15 and a half year olds would know about dildos or would be. You no, know. Oh, no, 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 no. There was definitely nothing like that involved. No. And, and in fact, when I got to college um, and I actually started hanging around with with people who identified as lesbian, um, it was interesting because, you know, looking back at it now, 
in those days, there was a lot of women around, at least in New Orleans, who were very uh, controlling about what other women should be doing in their lesbian activities. And I was informed that dildos were verboten. And I remember there was one old, and I don't remember, I don't remember how old she was, but I do remember she was much older than me, probably 40-ish. And she said, there is no space for a dick between two women. That's how she put it. And I will I never forgot that. Um, so yeah, no, dildos didn't, didn't take part in any of my lesbian activities for, for a long time because I internalized that prejudice. Yes. Uh, yes. And I just felt like, and also as a bisexual woman, I kind of figured, well, if I want dick, I'll just go with a guy. Why do I want that from another woman? You know, so I kind of internalized it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, somewhere along the line, we're coming back to my earlier question. Um, you decided that, uh, to bring money into it. Oh, yes. Yes. Lead us into the how that occurred, please. That that was a it's a funny story. I've I've told it uh, quite a few times. Um, I actually did it one time even at a, at a, a stand up open mic thing because it is a kind of a funny story. Um, I was a broke college student. I had just turned eighteen. Uh, I turned eighteen. My my birthday is on Halloween, and this uh, happened in the first week of January. So two months later. And what, you know, I was, uh, I had moved into an apartment of my own, but my parents told me that even though they were willing to pay for my tuition, because they wanted me to have a good education, and they were willing to help me out with food and things like that, but they weren't going to pay for an apartment rather than the dorm. And <laughs> so I, I had to scramble. For I'm, that I'm, I'm interrupting you. I'm laughing. Because I've heard that so many times from so many parents. Right? Absolutely. We'll pay for your food. We'll pay for your tuition. We'll pay for your clothes. But we're not going to pay for an apartment. You're going to yep. dormitory. That's, yeah. You know what that's about. That's about a way of saying no sex. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm sure it is. Because my mom, I remember when my mom found out that I was having sex. And when she found out that it had not been a recent issue, Oh, my goodness. She acted like I had shot her. I mean, it was just she was just so distressed, utterly distressed. Um, and, and of course, my dad got angry at me and it was a big, big thing. I, um, I couldn't imagine it was easy for you, even though right no, now it's easy. No, to talk about no. It. no. Uh, I've never taken well to being yelled at by people I care about. Um, but or anybody for that matter. <laughs> being yelled at by strangers doesn't really bother me. Being yelled at by people I care about, that bothers me. Fair enough. Okay, so but, back to the so what happened. So so January um, comes along, and I'm looking for extra opportunities for money, and I got um, a kind of a friend of a friend situation. There was a, a a man who was an engineering professor at Tulane, and his wife was also an engineer, but she worked for a, a company of some sort, you know, some sort of commercial thing. Well. Three things happened simultaneously. The, the husband had a conference he had to go to, an academic conference. The wife had a business trip. And a roofer that they knew had made a deal with them and told them that he would give them a cut rate as long as they waited for a week in which he didn't have any other jobs. And so these things all fell in the same week. 
And so what happened was the, um, the folks wanted, like a college student, somebody who was reliable, and I came recommended, that they could give a key to, who would go to their house every day and let the, let the builders, you know, go up on the roof and, and, you know, so that way I could kind of, if they need to use the bathroom, they could come in or whatever. They just didn't want a bunch of strangers, the work crew, tromping through their house, using the bathroom and all that kind of stuff without some sort of chaperone. So they were willing to pay me what in the 80s, uh, this is 1985, this would have been January of 85, um, what was the princely sum to me of $5 an hour, 10 hours a day for seven days. Maggie, can uh, you hear me? Yeah, I hear you fine. Okay, I need to ask you to back up because we had a technical sure. problem. And sure. just as you were talking about um, uh, uh, getting the key to the house, uh, uh -huh. So we don't hear anything after that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'll back up to that point. Um, so they, I was to get the key and basically act as a chaperone so that the builders could come in and go to the bathroom and all that sort of thing um, with, with some sort of a chaperone there. And so they offered me what in 1985 was a pretty good sum for a, a broke college student, which was $5 an hour for 10 hours a day for seven days, 350 bucks, which was my rent. So I was like, that's great. I have the rent for February already. Um, so I went and did, did the whole thing. And on Friday, the job was quicker than, than they expected. So they got done on Friday instead of Sunday. And the husband also came home on Friday. And so I'm showing him the work. I'm showing him what the builders asked me to show, you know, oh, look, here's the extra shingles. They put them in the garage and all that kind of stuff. And as we're walking around, I'm thinking about the money I'm going to be missing because I'm thinking to myself, this is $100 less than I was promised because I'm not going to be here Saturday and Sunday. And therefore, I won't have my rent. And... I realized that the guy, the, the professor, who was probably in his 50s, maybe, um, that he was kind of coming on to me, just a little subtly, like put his arm around my shoulder and, you know, that sort of thing. And finally, because I didn't appear to be picking up on his cues, he just came right out and said something. Uh, and I don't recall what words he used, but I do recall my response. Because before I could really even, it just sort of popped out of my mouth. I said, can I stay on the clock? And he was like, what? And I said, I was expecting 350 for this gig. And now it's only going to be 250. Will it still be 350? And he's like, sure. So half an hour or so later, 45 minutes later, I left. And I realized that was the easiest $100 I ever made in my life. And so after that, I kind of started uh, playing a sort of a game where when guys would ask me out, it would be, oh, well, I'm just in a terrible mood because my phone bill is due and I don't know how I'm going to pay it. And then the guy would be like, oh, how much is your phone bill? Oh, $75. Oh, well, what if I give you the money? So it was this kind of like little charade. 
um, that would go on. And and so I kind of got a reputation. And now, question no here. amounts, you know, no uh, and no advertising. I didn't advertise anywhere. I just it was the same little group of guys that kind of all knew. Um, you know, they knew me. They knew the score. I want a, a technical question. In most endeavors, mm-hmm. whether it's carpentry or surgery or psychology or library science, when one wants to go into that endeavor, there are ways to learn how to do it. You went to library science school. I went to graduate school and got my doctorate. Uh, A carpenter might work with other carpenters and they're taught. Plumbers work with plumbers. Automotive people sometimes go to automotive school. How does a young girl learn what to do? That's a good question. Um, Here's a guy saying, "Okay, a hundred bucks is no is no is no issue." But you've never done this before, so I'm asking, how do you know what to do? I mean, do you suddenly have the courage to start zipping down his fly and sucking on his cock, or I mean, what do you do? You nobody uh, nobody taught you anything. I just did the same thing I did with 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 guys that weren't paying me. Really, I just did exactly the same thing. I didn't do anything different. I did exactly the same thing. Um, and, and he was happy. So I just kept doing it. Well, I'm a little confused here because I would assume with, with guys that you weren't charging, like dates, you know, and so on, mm-hmm. you'd start out by kissing and mm-hmm. fondling and mm-hmm. you do the same exact thing, that kind of stuff, and then petting mm-hmm. and then leading to close off. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, just a little faster because I wanted to move it along, you know, a little less preliminaries. Um, but but no, the same same basic thing. Okay, that, that served me well, and that 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 served me well my whole career. I just that's just the way I did it. So you're in college with this professor. Was the first time you actually charged a fee. Mm-hmm. Then you went on to charge other people fees mm-hmm. during your college career. I assume, correct me here, or tell the story if you want to interrupt, that word got around that you could, that you would do this for a certain amount of money. Yeah. So I imagine you started to, like in any other business, you started to build up a clientele. You must have had repeaters. Yes. So it was all all repeaters, really. It was a, it was a small group. Somebody, one of my friends once asked me, like, how many guys were in that group? And I honestly can't tell you, but I would think no more than about a dozen. Like it wasn't some huge number. It was a, a fairly small, compact number. And I, I kind of got that pattern, I think. And I, I suppose this really addresses the question you asked a minute ago. I also had a friend who was older than me because uh, I was 18 at the time. She was 28. So she was 10 years older. She was divorced. She had a child. And her ex-husband was kind of a ne'er-do-well. He was often late on child support, that sort of thing. And so what she would say to me is when, you know, if she needed money and, um, and it wasn't forthcoming from the ex, she'd say, well, guess it's time to turn a couple of tricks. And she had a small group of men that she would call up and say, hey, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think I sort of borrowed that pattern from her. Uh, in the sense that, so I learned 
I learned that technique from her. Oh, that right. You can just call them up when you need it. And, and sometimes they call you because of course, in those days, right, everything was by regular phone. It was, there was no texting and there was no, you know, there was no caller ID. So am I correct in assuming that since you were a college girl and the people you in this group of 12 or so men were somehow either connected to the school or in some way. All of them. Oh, yeah. Mostly graduate students. Um, A couple of professors. Okay, so therefore, I'm correct in assuming that you were safe. Mm hmm. Right. I felt safe. I felt completely safe. Right. You didn't have to deal with the concern. Somebody's going to beat you up, yeah. push you out of the car, you know, all that. No, 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 no. nothing like that. OK, no. so you had a very safe entrance into the business of sex work. Very, mu- very safe. And in fact, very because they were kind of invested in making it look normal because a lot of guys don't like thinking that they're paying for sex. So we just did it like a date. We didn't, there was no specific time. There was no, it was very casual, you know? So it was like uh, one guy might give me 75 bucks and we might go on a three hour date. Another guy might give me a hundred bucks and we go on a two hour date. Another guy, you know what I'm saying? It, and it would just be, a, it, we'd go see a movie. We'd go eat. We'd go back to my place and we'd screw and then he'd leave and, you know, that sort of thing. But to exterior people, Looking at it, it just looked like a college girl dating. It didn't look, you know, except when it was the older guys. Um, and I noticed that most of them didn't want to do too much in public. I guess, again, New Orleans is a small town. Um, I suppose they didn't want it getting back to, you know, the wrong people. Faculty. Okay. So that's college and that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then you took a two year break before you went to uh, graduate school. Uh, roughly two years, about three, two, yeah, three, maybe. Yeah. Two or three, whatever Two, it. Right. Did you continue the work during that period or did you take a break? No, I was very stupid. (laughs) I, I stupidly accepted a proposal at the ripe old age of 20, um, and, and stopped working because I was young and dumb and, you know, had illusions Um, and so it wasn't until that relationship was very on again, off again. Um, it was a very, what they call a stormy relationship. You know, we'd argue, we'd break up, we'd get back together. We, you know, and this went on for seven and a half years. Uh, we got married, which we shouldn't have, but we did. Um, and then, uh, in January of 95, he took off. I mean, just up, up and left, um, And so I tried to kind of hang on for a while. I I did not take the breakup well. Um, I've never been a person who, I don't get um, romantically attracted to people easily. And so it's very difficult for me when I do invest that effort and do get involved, breakups are very hard uh, on me because I've got a lot invested in them. and so, you know, it was difficult. I had trouble. Within a few months, I couldn't manage to go to work anymore. I was just not in a psychological state um, to do it. So, you know, this kind of dragged on for a couple of years. I got a sugar mama who kind of took care of me. Um, what, one of the kind of peculiarities of my, my sexual development is that in that early period, 
I had two sugar mamas at different times. I never had a sugar daddy, which I think is is kind of odd, um, but that's the case. Um, and so, so did you I, have a sugar mom while you were with this man for seven and a half years? Um, no, I did not. I had her at the beginning, like right when he and I were first starting to date, but we weren't exclusive yet. And then uh, the second sugar mama was after he left me. I see. So so during this period with him, the seven year period, you were on a break from, quote, the business. Yes. I oh, yeah. Okay. Yes, very much. Oh, yeah, very much. All right. Um, so now he's gone and you've got gone. Got a sugar mom and take us into the next phase of your work life in the sex uh, industry. So the next the next thing started. So he left me in January of 95. I managed to kind of hold on and, you know, work with the sugar mama, help from friends. Uh, I sold the house and I used that to pay rent in advance. But by the by September of 97, I realized there was just no way. I could continue to not work. <laughs> they had to be some, something had to give. Um, and I, for some reason, I didn't really think about escorting. Um, I decided to strip, you know, so I worked as a stripper for two years. Um, and then by the, by September, October of 99, I was really sick of stripping. I, I just did not like it. Um, and my best friend, told me, you know, why don't you just do escorting? And I'm like, you think? And she's like, oh, yeah, she goes, you'd be really good at it. And I thought back to college and I said, well, I mean, I kind of sort of did it before, you know, not exactly. But let me let me interrupt for a moment, because a, a lot of young women, I don't know how many, but a certain number consider going into stripping for at some point in their lives to make mm -hmm. some money. And yeah. before we go into your escorting phase, mm -hmm. give us some flavor of the life, two years of a stripper. What do you, what do you want to share with the public about what it was like, what the life was like? Well, stripping was a little harder for me because I was almost 31 when I started. Um, and of course, most of the girls I was competing with were, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, um, very young. Um, and so I got tired a little more easily than they did. Uh, I wasn't as, and I, I still had an extremely good figure. I still have an extremely good figure, you know, but it was, it was still, you know, I was aware. I was very aware of the fact that I'm competing with girls 10 years younger than me. Um, and so I was always very open. I was the extras girl. Um, and some strip clubs, they don't like extras girls and some strip clubs, they, they realize it's going to happen. Um, you know, extras girls are the ones that if you go in the um, VIP room, the guy can slide her some extra cash and she'll do something quick um, in the VIP room, which you're not really supposed to do. Um, well, how, how far do they, you go? A hand job or a blow yeah, job? Yeah, hand jobs, blow jobs, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, because, you know, you really don't, you can't risk doing anything that you could get potentially caught. Um, and and so, some strippers don't like extras girls. Some strippers basically have the opinion that, um, oh, when you do that, the, all the guys expect all the girls will do that. And my response to them was, yeah, you're 22 years old. <laughs> if you're 31 and you're still a stripper, then we'll, talk, we'll have this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but... 
but that was, uh, you know, I needed the extra money. And then what, tell us something about the flavor of daily life when you're not stripping, you're not at the club. What was your, your daily life like with that occupation? Well, I'm a very OCD person and I had a very big debt load uh, that my ex had left me with. And I really wanted to get that debt off my neck. I wanted to get it off my neck bad. So I worked at the club every single day, every single day. I took no breaks at all. Uh, and even some of the managers were like, you know, don't you think you want to, you know, take a few days off? And I was like, nope, 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 nope. Um, and so I was there, whether rain or shine, slow or fast, I was there all the damn time, which of course is part of why I burned out. Um, you know, I was at the time um, living with a good friend. Well, she still, we still live together, actually. She's downstairs right now. Um, but, you know, she and I, um, you know, she had a, a, another job at that time. Nowadays, she's, she's older and she's not in good health. So I support her now. But in those days, you know, she had her own job, of course, also. And so we powed around. Um, and my, my outside of the club life was basically the same as it had been before. You know, hang around my friends, watch some movies, you know, just all that sort of stuff. Nothing odd, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. This is important for the public to know, Maggie, to know that your job, though it happened to be in the sex industry, was a job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so your days were like regular days, like the like all the rest of us. It's oh, yeah. Not, it's not as though as if people might have some fantasy that sex workers daily lives are somehow different than the lives of, of, of the rest of us. No, it's true. People do think that because, I mean, you, you'll have that sort of thing where um, and, and I always leaned in on it because like when it, it, it became more pronounced when I became an escort, because in those days uh, doing agency escorting, because I started in January of 2000. There was an internet and there were independent girls on the internet, but I was not, I was not one of those clever people who had figured out the internet early. Um, and so, you know, I was working uh, for an agency and that means carrying a cell phone around all the time. And if the agency gets something, they call you. And so I might be in a grocery store. I might be, you know, at friend's house. I might be something like that when I got the call. And I would be very honest with the guys. I would, you know, the guy would be like, um, well, you sound great. How soon can you be here? And I'd be like, well, I'm in the grocery store right now. So I'm about to check out. Let me do that. My apartment's five minutes from here. I'll run over there, uh, put my stuff away, and then I can be on the way so I can see you in maybe 45 minutes. So I would lean in on it. You know, I would... I would you know, really reinforce, this is normal. This is just, you know, I remember one, one night, in fact, it was really rainy and um, this guy calls and I was baking cookies. And, and he said, how soon can you be here? And I said, well, I said, I've got one last um, tray of cookies to put in the oven and they'll be in there for 10 minutes. And as soon as they're out, I'll be on my way. He goes, you're baking cookies? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, from scratch? And I'm like, is there any other way? And, he, and, and I'm like, would you like me to bring some? And he's like, what are they? I'm like, chocolate chip? He's like, yes, please. 
so when I got to the hotel, you know, I knock on the door and he opens the door and I hand him a bag of cookies. You know, like, here you go. Um, and I think even though I wasn't doing it on purpose that way, I, I really kind of think that helped protect me during that time because it was very hard. It's hard for guys to dehumanize you when you act so human. Point well taken, underlined mm -hmm. in red. Mm -hmm. Underlined in red. I think you, you gave yourself a certain amount of extra safety. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. You know, you're reminding me of something that Monica Monet told me recently. Do you know her? She wrote this book, The Secret, uh, Sex Secrets of Courtesans. I and think I don't know her personally, but I know the name. Yeah. And what she told me was just how many of the many years she was a, a, a courtesan and an escort, call girl at different different parts of the industry. How many times men hired her and there was no sex involved whatsoever? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. The public doesn't know that, Maggie. The public mm -hmm. doesn't know all. The public has fantasies of what goes on, but they don't know what goes on. You're saying, oh, sure. What does oh, sure mean? Oh, sure means <laughs> the this is the thing that the public doesn't know, as you say, but every sex worker knows that as you become more experienced and older and as you charge more, the more you charge, the less sex you have. <laughs> it really is true. That I is mean, worth repeating. The more yeah. you charge, the less sex you have. Tell us. Yeah. About, that's an interesting phenomenon. Please yeah. elaborate. Well, because you become you, you the more like a, like a regular date, like a like a social date, um, you can create the more of that feeling you can create, the more money you can command, uh, because that's what that's what most guys want. You know, and this is one of the infuriating things about prohibitionists. Prohibitionists want to pretend that the clients of sex workers are these monstrous people, that they're not like other men, that they're, you know, that they're, they're dehumanizing the girls, that they're, and, and this is not true. None of this is true. The majority of clients actually, and I hear this from lots of girls, that if they do both, if they do dating and they do working, that they get treated better by their clients than by their, um, their social dates. Once I started escorting, I really didn't date socially anymore. Um, but so I didn't really notice that dichotomy, but I did notice from the past, I'm like, you know, the, the guys I dated for free way, way back in college didn't bring me flowers every damn time. They didn't take me to restaurants this nice. They didn't, you know what I'm saying? And, and so those, those things were nice. And so it's the I, I, Year 2000 is when you moved. It was a few years after you finished working as a stripper. You moved into working as an escort and you were doing it with an agency. Yes. And you felt pretty safe. You weren't getting hurt. You weren't getting beat up. No. You didn't feel, live in terror of what the next experience is going to be like. No. Right. And no. you're having and you're having a, a normal a normal day when you're working you know, just regular day. I love the story about the cookies. I can almost hear you saying I'm, I'm oh, just, yeah. I've got my cookies in the oven and I'll be right over in a few minutes. You can put something in my oven. Just, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, the funny thing is, you know, I, I remember one guy 
I did that thing with the, the, the grocery store, right? And he's like, just out of curiosity, what grocery store are you, you know? And I said, well, actually, it's right down the street from you because I already had his address. Right. And he's like, well, you know, he goes, if you want, you can just put your groceries in my fridge and then, you know, take up. And I'm like, okay. So I showed up at his door, knocked on the door. I'm holding two bags of groceries. Oh. And I'm like, this one's not cold. This one's cold. Let's put this one in the fridge. Okay. And, and when we, and I, I hung the other one on the doorknob and I said, because I don't want to forget my cold groceries when, when I leave. And so I, I appeared with two bags of groceries and I left with two bags of groceries an hour later. So <laughs> love the story. Love the story. That's a great story. Okay, let's continue with your life story now. You're, you're working at a, a, in an agency, and then you moved on to what happened next in your career. What I did next, what the next step was, was um, I, I did not like the agencies that I was um, dealing with. And later on, I did find one that I thought that the, uh, the agency owner was ethical and that I liked him and I trusted him, and he became a good friend of mine. But before I met him, I realized a lot of these agency owners are terrible people uh, because, of course, there's nothing like a better business bureau, right? So you can be a terrible person and, and still be in this business and it's okay. Um, and people won't stop you. So I started my own agency because I wanted young girls to have a place they could work where the owner was looking out for them. Um, and so we started an agency like that. And so I, it didn't take too long for the word to get around. And there were, there were some girls in New Orleans who would only work for me. Um, and the other owners that didn't want to deal with newbies, you know, when, when a girl called to apply and they would be, um, and they'd ask them, you know, have you ever worked before? And if the girl said no, they'd say, well, I'm not going to hire you, but here, call this lady, she'll hire you. And because I would give them the whole talk and I'd give them the whole, you know, now, given that, for two years. given that it's an illegal activity, how does a newbie who's never done it before find an agency? Oh, they just call the phone book. It was in the phone book in those days. And they just called. They just I, I got calls from girls twice a week or more uh, who were wanting to work. You know, they saw the, they call the ad in the phone book. They say, what would you, you know, put in the phone book? What, what kind of name would you put in the phone book that would tell them that this is a sex work in, uh, agency? Oh, it was under the it was under escort services. Escorts. So yeah, nowadays, was, nowadays it would be on the internet in the same way. Yes, yes. But escorts. The internet has kind of killed escort services. I mean, they still exist, but they're much more specialized. Uh, it's not like it really was back in the early aughts. And in fact, by '06, I had made the appraisal that by '06 I said, you know what? really independents are, are most of the market now. It's really hard to get new girls. I wasn't getting very many phone calls from new girls anymore because they were all going independent. And so in 06, I made the decision to close my doors. So I said, you know, this is, it's silly. I'll just go ahead and, and shift to the internet myself for my own uh, work. And, and then in, in 06 anyway, I was retiring again uh, because I had gotten married to one of my clients, actually, to my to my favorite client. Um, um, and we good. stayed married for a few years. Um, mm -hmm. And then we we did eventually get divorced, but it was not 
it wasn't anything really to do with my work. If it was, if it was something to do with my work, it was kind of the opposite in the sense that maybe his view of me originally was much more romanticized because he only met me, he met me as an escort. And so once the daily grind had gone on for years and years and he had seen me sick and he had seen me with my hair pulled back and he had seen me, you know, put on a little weight and he'd seen me throw up and he'd seen him say and yelling at him. And, and once all this had gone on for a few years, I think maybe the bloom was off the rose a little bit. Well, the fantasy, he had a fantasy. going. Sure. And I don't, and I don't, I don't have any, we had a very amicable divorce, extremely amicable. So it didn't Uh, wrench you the way you described it. No, no. The first part was, the first part was very hard. Yeah. But he actually, even though nowadays, of course, you don't require the, um, you don't require the approval of the other person to file divorce papers. But he played it kind of the old-fashioned way. He waited until I was ready to divorce before. And then he said, okay, let's go ahead and and do it. And so I'm I'm very grateful to him for that, you know, for making that much easier than it would have been. Um, And we still talk. He still texts me very often. He remarried. um, And, and, you know, we we chit-chat, you know, if... If I see something, uh, he's a huge Star Wars fan. So if I see some Star Wars thing, I'll text it to him, you know. And if he sees a Doctor Who thing, he'll text it to me, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so we're really still very friendly. Now, coming back to the agency and what you did after the agency, you went independent. Mm-hmm. Where does the law and the fear of the law fit into this work for you? Basically, the way I have always looked at it, I have always been kind of an anarchist. I've never had a comfortable relationship with authority, ever. I was, I was the kind of kid that when my mom would tell me to do something, my immediate response was, why? Why should I do that thing? Um, I didn't take well to arbitrary declarations. I didn't take well to people saying, you must do this because we are over you. And my mom was always frustrated because she was all through school. It was always like, how can you possibly make A's in subjects and C's in conduct? (laughs) And the answer is because I I would not listen. I would not mind. I I mean, I would most of the time. But as soon as it was something that I viewed as arbitrary, I mean, when it was something like, let's be quiet now in time for, for, because we're going to have class, that made sense to me. So I would be quiet. That was fine. Um, But if it was something very arbitrary, I I, I had no, I couldn't do that. Um, And that's been my whole life. And so the law, um, I've always thought the idea of criminalizing a thought, because I mean, that's what prostitution laws are, right? If I did the same thing for free, because I like a guy, it would be completely legal. Because I'm doing it with a profit motive, that thought in my brain makes it illegal. This is thought crime. This is Orwellian. This is, this is not something that should be in a free country. 
and and so I never felt any particular. Um, it, it did not seem a legitimate law to me. It has always seemed like an illegitimate law to me. So I've ignored it. Now, the fact that the cops are out there and the fact that they're out there trying to trick sex workers obviously put a, um, it put a condition into the work that I had to deal with. Uh, and so one of the main things we were looking for when we screened guys on the phone was whether they're a cop. That's the most of all in all the in the in the six almost seven years I owned um, an agency. The majority of the problems we had were not bad clients. The majority of the problems we had were cops. Cops trying to you know having a sting, trying to trick girls, trying to you know. Um, in the whole time I owned it, I only had two girls get arrested, and one of them was me. Um, and both times we had a lawyer that was on, that was on retainer. And so as soon as we realized what was going on, I was called the lawyer, he goes down, he gets her out and, you know, then helps her with, with navigating the, you know, the system, you know, do you want to plead guilty? Do you want to pay the fine? What do you want to do with this? You know, that kind of thing. Um, what did you, what did you do with your case? I just paid the fine, which nowadays I would do something different. Um, but in those days, you know, I was married. Um, I, I really didn't want to make waves. I just wanted it to go away. Of course. How much was the fine? Do you recall? 300 bucks. 300 bucks. 300 bucks, which was what I was charging in those days. I was about so to I say, it sounds like a cost of doing business. Some people. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. 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 And I don't like the fact that, you know, um, it, I still have that criminal record out there, but it was a misdemeanor, wasn't it? Uh, was it a felony? Yeah, yeah, it was. No, it was a misdemeanor. Now that you think about it, because he, they also originally threatened me with a felony because this is this is complicated. But I've tried to give you the quick version. Yeah, under Code Napoleon, which is the form of law in Louisiana, you're required to spell out every crime. So the Louisiana law books, law code is way bigger than most states because every single crime has to be spelled out. Well, somebody at some point realized that they technically couldn't charge sex workers with uh, what they called in those days crime against nature, i.e. oral or anal sex, which is a felony, which was a felony in those days. And so they realized they couldn't charge them with that in a sting because it hadn't taken place. So what they did was, this is in probably the 80s, I think, they wrote a new law called Crime Against Nature by Solicitation, which is abbreviated CANS. Um, and basically that said, it's still a felony even if you only talk about it. Well, after Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, struck down sodomy laws. The Supreme Court said sodomy laws are no longer allowed. But CANS was not technically a sodomy law. It's, it's talking about it, not doing it. And so that kind of stood and the Supreme Court didn't make any effort to do anything about it. And so they used to charge a lot of street girls, especially. They would treat, charge them with that 
because it let them get a felony thrown in, in addition to just plain old misdemeanor prostitution. And originally they threatened to hit me with that. This was in, um, this would have been in October of 05. So a little bit after Katrina, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, and they, they, they originally threatened to throw that at me, but when my lawyer actually pulled up the charges, it wasn't there. So I think what happened and his theory was, is that basically when the DA realized that I had had a, a, a federal judge call the, the, the jail to let me out as a favor to my lawyer, he's like, yeah, this chick is connected. Let's just hit her with the misdemeanor because if we hit her with the felony, she's gonna fight and we'd rather just get the money and be well, done. But the the part and part of the story to me and for everyone hearing this and everyone who is eventually going to read it in my book is that talking about something was made into a criminal activity. Yes. Is like throwing gasoline fire on the wool on, on a fire of making sex work illegal to begin with, which in yes. itself, in my opinion, is heinous. And it's yes. against mostly against women uh, perpetrated by men, which is a, it's a it's a horrendous thing that that sex workers are, are, are considered criminals and are arrested for their work. Uh, and I hope we're making progress. And I think, you know, you're coming out like this and, and this interview and others is going to hopefully uh, contribute to the cause of, of legalization. I, I hope so. Or, or decriminalization is what we prefer, of course. Yes. Yeah, so now um, let's talk legal- about that for a moment, please, Maggie. Sure. Um, um, a lot of people get confused because yeah. the terms are used kind of the opposite in sex work as they are in drug legalization um, in the sense that in drug legalization, decriminalization is closer to criminalization than full legalization is. And sex work is the opposite. Why? Um, Because my friend, Mistress Matisse, is of the opinion that the reason is because substances are not people. And substances are not acts. So in other words, if you have marijuana, you can make a law saying any possession of marijuana at any time is illegal. It doesn't matter what your reason is. But with, with prostitution law, you can't do that because all the acts are legal. It's only the, the money, the profit motive that makes it illegal. So it makes it kind of a different thing. Um, legalization is what they have in Nevada. That's what Americans are most familiar with. Speaking as a as a former sex worker, retired sex worker, whatever you happen to be today, mm-hmm. why is legalization not preferable? Because that's get out of jail. That's the end of the discussion. Why would you not prefer that? Because in in sex work, it doesn't mean that. In sex work, legalization means that there are certain narrow conditions under which uh, prostitution is allowed. And if you step outside of those bounds, whatever they are, you're still, cr- you're still committing a crime. So in Nevada, 
Nevada, many people are shocked to hear, Nevada has the highest rates of arrest of sex workers of any state in the country. Nevada. Because they aggressively pursue anybody outside of the brothel system. The escorts. And, um, and so if you, in, in the UK, for example, in the UK, prostitution itself is legal, but so-called brothel keeping is illegal. And all that means is keeping a place that you see clients. So if I have an apartment, which I do, uh, where I see clients in the British system, that changes the app from a legal one to an illegal one. Because Are you telling me that in England, if you bring a client to your apartment, then it's called a brothel? Yes. But if you have sex with him in an automobile or on a bicycle, then that's okay? Or his hotel or his house, or yes. Yes. Isn't that bizarre? It's well, I'm getting, bizarre. I'm getting educated and I appreciate it. Yep. Now, so let's, let's say that Nevada changed it to decriminalization, then the working girls, no matter where they worked, would not be prosecuted. Is that correct? Correct. correct. It, under decriminalization, sex work is treated like any other work. Uh, and people sometimes will say, well, especially the prohibitionists, right? They'll be like, oh, well, you don't want any kind of regulation. All businesses have regulation. It's like, no, no, we're not saying that. We're saying it's not a criminal matter. Use an example. The example I like to use is a restaurant. You know, there are health codes that govern restaurants, right? So if a, an inspector comes in and he finds violations, you know, whatever, the, the floor is too dirty or, or whatever, you know, whatever the, the violation is, what does he do? He writes up a little report. He gives it to the manager or the owner. He says, I'll be back next Monday and you better have this stuff cleaned up. And if you don't, I'm going to fine you. What does he not do? He does not come in with a whole squad of cops, beat up everybody, arrest the owner, the cook, the wait staff, the washing up staff, the customers, and put all their pictures in the paper and call them perverts. That's what does not happen. And that's all we're asking for really with decriminalization. It's like, if you wanna come up with rules that say no brothels within a thousand feet of a school or whatever, you know, this is part of modern living, unfortunately. It ain't great, but it's the way it is, you know. Or if you say, um, or in New Zealand, for example, where they have decriminalization, New Zealand says up to four women can work from the same premises before it becomes a brothel. So if it's you and your three friends and you're renting an apartment, that's okay. If you add one more, now it's a brothel, now you have to get a license. Um, so, you know what I'm saying? So it's things like that. It's, it's, it's all zoning stuff and- I understand. You've you know, educated me about something I really haven't understood and I really appreciate it about the decrim and the legalization. Um, it, Maggie, in, in my profession, I work sitting in a chair. And as long as my heart and my head are okay, I can continue to work sitting in the chair. I'm 83 years old now, and I'm still in practice seeing patients. And, but in many fields of endeavor, baseball, athleticism, sometimes carpentry, 
as one ages, it becomes much more difficult to maintain their occupation. How does that work in the sex industry? It, it all depends on the person. Um, most women use sex work. Most women who do sex work at some point in their lives, they may go in and out of it. So, for example, you might have a lady who she does it for a little while when she's in college. Then she quits and she goes, she has a regular career. Then she gets divorced and, uh, and finds that she needs the extra money. So she goes back in for a while. Then maybe she gets remarried and quits for a while. I mean, and this is what I did, right? This is exactly what I did. I kind of bounced in, bounced out, you know, for a long time. Um, and a lot of women treat it that way. A lot of women, they, they only did it for a short time or they, they fall back on it later. Um, it's not a lot of us that's, that make it a lifelong career. Um, that's a smaller number. But it's of, I'm sorry? Is there sex work for women in their 60s and 70s? There is. No, there is. Uh, uh, me, myself, I don't want to still be doing it in my, you know, in my 70s. But no, there are a lot of, of people. There were these uh, two sisters that were in the, um, in the red light district in Amsterdam, the Falken sisters. They both worked until their late 60s. I think one of them retired at 67 or something, I think because she had like a, a bad hip. Uh, and the other one worked like two extra years till 69. Um, and, you know, so that, that's, it happens. Um, but for the most part, I'd say it's, it's less a physical thing and more just you get tired of changing conditions and it becomes a, a, a just so much to keep up with. You know, like for me, uh, you know, I've reached the point, one of the reasons I semi-retired is because the ad sites keep changing and how you do things keeps changing. And then when the pandemic started, it's like, okay, now everybody is shifting to doing online work. And you know what? I feel like I'm just too damn old to learn. I don't want to learn all those new tricks. <laughs> I just want to keep doing things the way I've been doing them. And so for me, um, it was a good thing to semi-retire because I've got my established relationships with my clients. I don't have to worry about new ads anymore. I don't have to worry about changing my model. I don't have to worry about learning a bunch of new skills that I'm disinclined to learn. Um, I can just keep on the same way I've been. Uh, now I say that, but I have friends who aren't that much younger than me, who yet are right on it. They're on, they're ace. They're just keeping right up on the, you know, and I've got other friends who are of similar age to me or a little younger who semi-retired long ago. Yeah. They stopped taking new, cause they got all the, the regulars they needed. You know, why bother? Um, I get it. And so for me, I think, what keeps you from burning out in any profession, uh, not just sex work, I mean, anything, is finding the aspects of the job you hate and eliminating them and only keeping the parts you like. I like seeing guys. I like, you know, talking and, and doing the stroking and the touching and the sex part and the going out to dinner. And, and I like that. I like my guys. I, I, I want to keep seeing my guys. What I don't like is having to write new ad copy 
What I don't write is, oh, that website got changed. Oh, what I don't want is, oh, well, now we don't see people in person anymore. Now it's all OnlyFans. And I can't handle all that. It's too much. I'm laughing with you, Maggie, because in my profession, I love the clinical work. And of course, I love the radio work and the book writing. But I hate administration and I hate paperwork. And that's why when exactly. you I laughed with you. So we're coming to the end of our time. And I have one last question for you. And okay. that is, and take your time. You can take all the time you want in thinking about this. What did we not cover that you'd like the public to know? Oh, my goodness. So much. But I think the most important thing that I wanna really emphasize is what you said at the very beginning, which is that sex workers really are not any different. The, 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 the major difference between sex workers and most other women, and I say women because most sex workers are women, although a certain percentage are, are, are men, um, and and certain percentage are non-binary people, you know, but, mostly women, right? And certainly women are the ones that that the law tends to focus on. The only thing that makes sex workers different for the most part from other women is that we're more comfortable with sex. For the most part, that's the only real difference. I mean, other than that, we're just like any, you know, we, we, we have different, one of the things I've been doing with my Twitter account the past couple of years and my blogging is I'm putting a lot more emphasis on my stuff that isn't sex work. Like uh, I bought a farm on the Washington coast and I've been adding on uh, an extension in the back with a a bathhouse in it and and some guest cottages. And so I published pictures of my work. Uh, I learned to weld and I showed pictures of myself welding. I, I, as I said earlier, I love Doctor Who, and so I was writing about Doctor Who episodes that I watched. And the reason I'm doing this is to show people, see, you know, I'm a nerd. <laughs> I, mean, I just have a, a regular nerdy older woman life. Not, I mean, it's it's not really that different. I can see the headline of one of your blogs being "Sex Work and Chocolate Chip Cookies." Exactly. 